0: If you're able, please stand to show reverence for the Lord as we join in hearing his word. Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 10. You'll find it on page 152 in your pew Bibles. It'll be on the left column, middle of the page. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations, and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him, he will repay him to his face. Our New Testament reading is in First Peter chapter two, verses nine through twelve. You'll find it in the Pew Bible on page 1015, again, left column, middle of the page. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh Which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this, your word. Thank you that you speak to us through it. Thank you that you, by your spirit, are able to apply your word to each heart, Lord, what it is that they need. Help us now, in Jesus' name, to hear what you are saying to your church. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Who gets to drive? Isn't that the question to be decided when you have two teenagers in the house and both are learning to drive? They both think that the one who calls it first is the one who gets the keys. Who made up that rule? I have no idea. But it's the owner it's the owner who determines the driver. Isn't that true? All right. Some of y'all, you're teen- you don't have teenagers yet, apparently. But <laughs> uh, yeah. See, the owner who—it's the one who paid for the vehicle. Yeah, they're the ones who will determine who drives. Now, this—this this is a, a relevant question for the church to answer when it comes to the struggle between multi-ethnic church and multiple ethnic churches. We're continuing in the sermon series that, and the the sermon that we began last week as we were talking about this, Once You Were Not a People. See, what drives the vision of the church? Is it rooted in the gospel, theology, or is it rooted in pragmatism, ideology? Peter Andres, writing for the Center for Pastor Theologians, analogizes, when theology isn't in the driver's seat, ideology takes the will. And ideology has no promise of grace to offer the vicious, violent, victimized children of Adam. Yeah, ideology, ideology, it's mechanistic and it relies on on law and, and formulaic rule keeping. But the gospel, theology, infuses the vision with grace. Grace from God the Father given through the Son and implanted by the Spirit. And what we've been trying to show in the series here so that the world may know, might know, answering common objections to the multi-ethnic vision is that the theological foundation for this vision is set within the gospel from the beginning to the end. See, we don't want to get that, we don't want to get this out of order. We want theology to drive our ideology. Then this, and yes, an ideology sits in the back seat and pout because it didn't get the keys. <laughs> so, but this is what our scripture text sets before us. The doctrine, then the practice. God has saved people from every nation and language and tribe and, and then tells us, How we are to relate to Him as we relate to each other. And last week we heard the outline for the passage of Scripture. We heard we heard it, the text in a sentence. That we are proclaimers of God's excellencies, since we are the people of God who maintain a faithful presence before unbelievers, prompting God's glory when judgment day comes. The first point of the message we talked about last week, that of being proclaimers of God's excellencies, that the church was multi-ethnic from the beginning, and it will be multi-ethnic in the end, and that multiple, thus multiple ethnic churches are not the same as multi-ethnic churches, since multiple ethnic churches is a separate but equal approach to the gospel. And as such, it's insufficient for proclaiming the excellencies of God. God's excellencies are best proclaimed by the multi-ethnic church as a family, as a royal priesthood, as a holy nation, highly treasured by God. And how treasured is the multi-ethnic church? Well its value is is understood in the cost of her purchase, Jesus' blood. And for this reason, it's because of what Christ did that we are made God's peculiar possession and as such we people but now you are God's people once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. You see Peter's readers are among the the dispersion in in Pontius and Galatia and Cappadocia Asia and and Bithynia and that's 1 Peter 1.1 and and he tells this multi-ethnic group that once they were not a people, they weren't together. They had no, no, there was no unity, but now they are the people of God. Once they had not received mercy, but now they have received mercy. But where does Peter get this from? Well, he's using an Old Testament passage from Hosea verse chapter one and, and two, where Hosea, you recall, is a prophet who was told to marry the most notoriously unfaithful woman of the community, Gomer? And, to, and he, he was told this to illustrate to the nation of Israel their unfaithfulness and God's love for them. Hosea and Gomer had three children, Jezreel, and then they had two other children, a girl and a, and a boy. And the, the girl's name was No Mercy lo Ruhama, Can you imagine having that as a name? You know, and the boy's name was not my people, Lo-Ami. Yeah. See, so you know, it's like you know, every time you're called, you're ashamed again. You know, but then in Hosea 2 and verse 23, the Lord says, I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he will say, you are my people. God, So Hosea and Gomer's children were to be reminders to the people of the hope of God reclaiming and renewing his people. And Peter is saying to these dispersed multi-ethnic people, you are still one because you have been made God's people you are still one because you have received mercy. See it's the calling of God that gives unity to the church gathered out of all ethnicities, tribes and language. And the question is, why would any church, why would any church diminish the unity the call of God created by segregating the ethnicities? Why would they why would you do that? It must mean that they don't think that the power of the gospel is for this type of unity. The gospel is good for personal applications of mercy. The gospel is powerful for changing my identity. The gospel is good for the forgiveness of sin, but it's not powerful enough to make me love my neighbor across ethnic, cultural, and language lines in a local expression of the body of Christ. You see the problem with separate but equal multiple ethnicities approach and and how it's not the same as multi-ethnic. It blunts the edge of the gospel's sword. It falls short of the vision of the people of God being one. And now lest you think that I'm making a straw man argument, let's consider a few things. Yeah, consider the desire of many young people to see racial injustices understood in the light of their religious faith. George Barna uh, last year did a, a comprehensive, I mean, well it was broad, uh, study on this very thing. And one of the things that Barna's research showed was that for American Gen Zers, racial injustice is a shared top concern among teens, 32%, and young adults, 35%. When looking at the data segmented by race, black, Hispanic, and Asian Gen Zers all identify racial injustice as their top concern. And in response to the question, my religious faith, or the statement, my religious faith is important to how I understand injustice in society, 48% black Gen Zers, 42% Hispanic Gen Zers, 35% Asian Gen Zers, and 50% white Gen Zers agree with it strongly. Now, when you get, when you get that kind of, of cross-cultural agreement on it, a, on a, you have to pay attention. You have to pay attention. That, the expectation is that my faith Ought to have some kind of impact on racial injustice. So another thing to consider is the early church's language of love and family and how they how they would kiss one another when they greeted each other. And not only that, but even as, as they were being martyred and, and as they were dying, they would still. Kiss each other you, that 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 language of of love and and family it was part of why the church had such a meteoric rise in the Roman Empire, and historian uh, Jan Brimmer writes this: we will never be able to understand the rise of Christianity if we do not take into account such intense feelings as we never hear of them in members of other contemporary pagan cults and religions. see what so this is to say that in the Roman Empire, mercy, love, fellowship, you know they were not something that other religions and cults practiced. It was not in their doctrine. They had no framework for it. Christians did. Remember, their founder loved them with his life, his death, and was the mercy that ignited them to... Point number three, maintain a faithful presence. Look at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So this, this, is, this is an amazing statement that Peter is making because he, he, he has taken Deuteronomy, what we read our Old Testament reading, he's applied it to these dispersed multi-ethnic Christians, effectively showing them to be the true Israel, both Jew and Gentile, and he's reminding them that wherever they are, wherever they've been dispersed, Israel is at war. They're foreigners. They are exiles. They are refugees who are far from home. All things that, that, that uh, the book of Deuteronomy and the, and the Old Testament would say about Israel. They are far from home and it would be their experience. Yet, they are to remember wherever they are, they are at war. With whom? The flesh. You see, you're at war with the flesh. See, what they were to value is that they were part, even though they were dispersed, they were part of a wider community, a broader family. They weren't merely individuals struggling against personal sins, praying for a personal sanctification. No, they were to, be, to remember that the power of their witness is in their unity within the culture. So even sanctification, it's, it's not a private matter. It happens within the culture. It's on your job, it's in your home, it's in the community. But wherever, wherever you are, you are there as a part of the chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. For even in, even in your sanctification, as the one people of God, you are showing and demonstrating that the Lord is God and the idols of the world are not. It's that word that word for for passions it's a word the Greek word is epithemia and it's a word that means over-desiring over-desiring a thing and that's what drove idol worship whether it was bell or bacchus or or if it's the stock market or a selfie on Instagram. You know it's still the same today. The nations have idols and in America yeah there are plenty you we know, have idols of money material sex self greed that's not the same as money yeah. we have political idols religious idols we make an idol of the family idols of our ethnicity and our cultures and all of these all of these wage war against our souls see and it, how often how often is it, this, this is true, how often does the lack of self-control of one's passion drive much of the injustices that exist in our communities? From drug use, to abortions, to domestic violence, and more. It's the lack of self-control is devastating our communities. In the multiple ethnic church approach where one is only concerned about your own group, it's, it's ineffective against this type of sin. You'll struggle to see that the problem is not merely individual responsibility, but that it's also systemic. See, Justin Martyr in the second century, when he, rec- he recognizes this as he writes his first apology. And he sees, he sees the exploitation of children being groomed for prostitution. And he points out how the system collected taxes off of them. Perpetuating this, so he says this, and I had to, I had to, I had to uh, massage the the quote because it. I mean, he really, he he really talks about some awful things that were being done. Uh, so, but anyway, he said this. But as for us, we have been taught lest we should do anyone any injury, and lest we should sin against God first, because we see that almost all, so exposed, not only the girls but also males are brought up to prostitution and you receive the hire of these and duty and taxes from them whom you ought to exterminate from your realm. Now he wasn't talking about exterminating the children, he was talking about this practice that this ought to be stopped, this ought to stop. So Justin Martyr is a Christian and he's calling out the wicked system of abusing children in the Roman Empire and people making wealth off of that so so the distinction of being unified as one by Christ as his royal priesthood is to exalt the name of God above the other idols of the culture And the diversity of idols itself lends itself to the further fragmentation of the culture. All these idols that we have, it just just causes the culture to break down even more. The multi-ethnic church is equipped through the grace of her identity to address this fragmentation. This is Justo Gonzalez in his book, Uh, He's a Christian historian and in his book For the Nations, it's a commentary on, on the book of Revelation, he recognizes when he writes, first and foremost if the Christian community is to be a city set on a hill or a beacon guiding the world into God's future its own inner life must point the way toward that future if the Christian gospel is not powerful enough within the church itself to lead us through the difficulties of ethnic conflict and cultural dissonance, we can hardly claim that it is good news to a world going through similar difficulties on a much larger scale the church must be one not primarily for its own sake or its own order its own sense of security etc the church must be one because a fragmented church is not much help to a fragmented world see the multiple ethnic churches separate but equal they're fighting this war on the wrong front It's the multi-ethnic church in its sanctification as the true Israel at war with the flesh, showing that the Lord is God, which leads us to point number four, the prompting God's glory when judgment day comes. Look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So with theology firmly in the driver's seat of the multi-ethnic vision, we can see that it it traverses numerous doctrines of our faith, soteriology, ecclesiology, sanctification, and eschatology. So I don't normally use these big words, (laughs) but but, so soteriology is salvation, you know, the Ecclesiology has to do with the church. You know, being sanctification is being made like Christ, what the Spirit does in us, and eschatology is, is the doctrine of future things. You know, so I don't usually use these words, but we got to see how profound what Peter is writing is to think and to think about the multi-ethnic church and how separate but equal it's not synonymous. See, this verse is teaching us that. What's before the unbelieving nations is that the church in her multi-ethnic sanctified beauty will prompt the nations to glorify God. So the word keep has the sense of wearing, of, 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 of putting on clothes. And honorable, that word honorable connotes beauty. And then being falsely accused, as the verse says, it's actually a compliment and persevering continuing in the good works it's going against the grain of the times with the good works of living together in community across the lines of ethnicity the unbelieving nations will at the judgment glorify God Peter has come a long way in his understanding of the gospel hasn't he you remember, yeah, you remember, and Paul confronts Peter in, in Galatians chapter two. And when Peter, he, he, he would eat with the Gentiles, but then when some Jews from Jerusalem show up, oh no, uh, no, no y'all over there, we over here. You know, he didn't want to eat, he didn't want to eat with them. And Paul confronted him on that, on that segregating himself apart. And Paul said his segregation was not in line with the gospel. See, multiple ethnic churches, separate but equal, they're not in line with the gospel. So with a clear understanding of salvation and the end times, multi-ethnic worship and fellowships were were the way of life for the early church. This is Justin Martyr one more time. He, He says, we formerly rejoiced in uncleanness of life, but now love only chastity. Before we used the magic arts, but now dedicate ourselves to the true and unbegotten God. Before we loved money and possessions more than anything, but now we share what we have and to everyone who is in need. Before we hated one another and killed one another and would not eat with those of another race. But now, since the manifestation of Christ... We have come to a common life and pray for our enemies and try to win over those who hate us without cause. Hallelujah. That's what the church was at the very beginning. Richard Bauckham, he's an apologist, and in his book, The Bible and Mission, he says, whatever defines Christianity as a historical world phenomena, cultural homogeneity is not likely to be such a feature. Almost certainly, Christianity exhibits more cultural diversity than any other religion, and that must say something about it. And now you might ask, well, what do we do since we have so many segregated churches? Protest them. Now, I don't mean go out with picket signs, I don't, that's not, what I, that's not what, I mean, what I mean. You protest them with our unity across the lines of race and class. Let the authenticity of our fellowship be the open rebuke that says you're not acting in line with the, God, with the truth of the gospel. And we love them back in line. But some will say, that's too great a cost for my church to make those kind of changes. Let me take you on a little tour and then I'm done. Step into the garden of Gethsemane. Pause for a moment beside one of the numerous olive trees and and keep watch with Jesus while he prays with the sweat dripping as great drops of blood. What did it cost him to bring us into the family of God? Stand in the courtyard and, and watch as the soldiers mock and beat him, pluck his beard, shoving a crown of thorns on his head and calling him the king of the Jews, and ask, what did it cost to make us a holy nation, a royal priesthood? You need to stop by the cross of Christ and ask, what did it cost to bring the mercy of God into our lives? His precious blood. Go to the empty tomb. Gaze upon its lack of contents. And see that he has risen with all power and authority in heaven and in earth in his hands. What did it cost for him to make us his treasured possession? The scripture tells us the end of all of this, that day of visitation, that judgment, that standing before God, what will happen? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is the end of every person from every nation, of every class, and every language. So do you think... Whatever it is that you might be giving up is a greater cost than Jesus paid to make us one. Perhaps you're letting ideology and not theology have the will. See, if the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not enough for us to pursue the end of separate but equal churches, there remains no more sacrifice for the sin of segregation Ephesians 2, 14 through 16 says this, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The only sacrifice is Jesus Christ. And the church belongs to Christ. He owns this vehicle and He's the driver. <laughs> so let's press on, brothers and sisters. We have a vision before us where one day we will see the nations of multitude that no one can number standing before the throne, bringing their glory into the new Jerusalem. And in that day, it's all sweetness and satisfaction. But for now, we, like Jesus, have that joy set before us with more to do. So take the encouragement from Justo Gonzalez as he reminds us, and he's writing, I tell you, he's writing on the book of Revelation, and, and he, he, he writes this, he says, what we need today, if we are to become the truly multicultural church we are called to be, even within the confines of the United States, is Jane Smith of Delaware, hello, who's deeply rooted in her Anglo culture, who shares and claims both the glories and the horrors, the bitter sweetness of her tradition, and we need her to work with John Smith of Columbus, who shares and claims the glories and the horrors, the bitter sweetness of his African American ancestry, and we need them to work with Juana Perez of Cincinnati, and with John Silverfox of Cleveland, and with jung Young Kim of Dayton, all of whom share and claim the glories and the horrors, the bitter sweetness of their respective Traditions, and together and separately we must each and all take the little scroll, that portion of God's message entrusted to us, and eat it and digest it and rejoice at the sweetness in our mouths and wonder at the bitterness in our stomachs. For we, like John, are called to go and prophesy again about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Let's pray. Father, the community of believers, the church that you have called the multi-ethnic body of Christ, the display of your wisdom is a supernatural community that you have brought together for the glory of your name. And we ask, oh God, for your help to continue to do this, to press on for the glory of Christ because this message is still The good news of the gospel that changes and renews lives and is renewing the world. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.